If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to the book of Jude. If you do not have a, a Bible with you, there's one provided there in the pew for you. You feel free to grab that. We're in the book of Jude this morning, second to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a very small and brief book, only uh, one, maybe a page and a half long, depending on the, the Bible that you have there. Uh, but let's turn there together. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13. 11 through 13, there in the book of Jude. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who's writing this. And he gives us this instruction here in verse 11, "'Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and they for pay, and they have perished headlong into the error of Balaam.'" and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And you can be seated this morning. It was H.A. Ironsides, a great preacher from the past, who said this, Strictly speaking, there are but two religions in the world, the true, that is of God's appointing, and the false, which is the product of man's own mind. There are only two religions in the world, the thing that God has given us through His Word very clearly, the thing that God has spoken to us truly of through His Word, and the other, which is the product of man's own mind mind, that which man has created of his own will and purpose. And as we've continued our way through here in the book of Jude, we find over and over again how strongly Jude denounces those who would teach false truth inside the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here that word that he starts with in verse 11, woe to them, woe to them. The word really means, if we were to translate it out, is how horrible it will be for them. It's a strong condemnation that Jude gives here towards those who are teaching false doctrine. But why was Jude so adamant about this? Why do we have this letter? Why do we find such strong denunciations here of false teaching? Because Jude understands that the danger of false teaching is not just in the teaching itself. It's not just in the one who is delivering the teaching and the fact that they are corrupting the very Word of God. In fact, the danger is in those who will follow after them. The fact that these false teachers do not exist just to corrupt themselves, but their entire purpose, their entire onset in life is to destroy the lives of others through their false teaching. Because we're not talking this morning about a man who might be misled in his understanding of doctrine. Any pastor will tell you, any Sunday school teacher will tell you that at a certain time in their life, they stood in a classroom, stood in a pulpit, and said something that was doctrinally in error in one way or the other, whether it be by a slip of the tongue or just by a misunderstanding of the text. But what we find here is not someone who is just doing something with a slip of the tongue. Not someone who just 
mistakenly quotes something wrong or says something wrong. These are people who have set out to purposefully deceive even the very church of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so dangerous. They know what they're doing. When you turn on your television to some of these channels that have, I I use the term Christian very loosely, but have these people on there who are spouting off one false doctrine after the other, and you ask yourself, do these people know what they're doing? Yes, they do. They know what they are doing. They know they are deceiving people. Because the truth stares them plainly in the face. But yet they choose to reject it. Now, the question might be asked, if you remember our study last week, the question might be asked, how is it that Jude here starts with such strong language of condemnation when just a few verses earlier he talked about Michael the archangel not reviling or pronouncing a judgment against Satan in the dispute over the body of Moses? Well, the answer to that is, is that Jude was not setting out a general rule of how we are to deal with evil or wicked people. Did Satan deserve to be judged against? He did. But what Jude was intending to do was to demonstrate that even though Satan deserved that, Michael acted in such a way because he knew what God's purpose was, and he knew of the position of those higher beings, those celestial beings. And Jude was purposely pointing out that these false teachers had no consideration of those celestial beings, no consideration of God's angels, no considerations of those who God had put into a specific purpose in a specific place. So he was talking about this one instance. He said, you have no consideration of those things which God has purposely done that you're willing to even speak evil of those messengers and those servants of God. Here's what Calvin said about this moment. Speaking of what Jude is doing here, he said, He did not so much imprecate evil upon them, but rather reminded them what sort of end awaited them. And he did so lest they carry others with them to perdition. Jude here is not condemning them of his own power and authority. When he says woe to them, it is a word of condemnation. It is a word of judgment. But he's not speaking it of his own accord. He's speaking it on accord of God himself. He's reminding them of the judgment that God has already levied upon them as false teachers. It was not Jude's own decision to do this. It was the command of the Lord. We go back to the Old Testament and we see God's specific commands against false teachers. In Ezekiel chapter 13, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Zechariah eleven seventeen. woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. The scriptures are very clear that God's judgment will fall heavily upon false teachers. What did Jesus say? Woe unto those who mislead one of these little ones. It would be better for a millstone to be put around his neck and cast into the sea. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty horrible way to die. And Jesus says it would be better to have a heavy stone tied around your neck, thrown to the bottom of the ocean, than for you to mislead one of these little ones. 
which makes it so interesting to see how people who are given over to false teaching, these false teachers are so lost in their sin, so hardened against God that they can do these things without any consideration. They're not worried about the people they're misleading. They're not concerned about the fact that they're misleading people from the truth of God's word to a doctrinal error. They have no concern or care the fact that they're going to lead people not to the road to heaven, not to the holiness of God, but they're going to lead them and cast them all the way to hell in the end. So Jude issues this woe to them. I want you to notice with me this morning as we begin to look at these verses first, the warning of their errors. The warning of their errors. Because he's already pronounced this woe. He's already said destruction is coming for them. Judgment is going to fall upon them and how horrible it will be under this judgment. And Jude continues to do what he's done so often here in this up in this book, he gives a triad of explanations. So he gives three examples. He's going to give three examples first of the warning of their errors, and then three examples of the evidences of their errors. He's going to use first some examples from the Old Testament of false teachers, of, of people who were given over to misunderstandings about God, to false teachings about God, and the judgment that fell upon them. And then he's going to look to the evidences of nature to show and to demonstrate how these false teachers were misleading the church. The first thing that I want you to see there is he says they have gone the way of Cain. They've gone the way of Cain. Now, all of us know the story of Cain found there in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. And as they were growing up, they began to work the land and Abel was a shepherd of sheep, and Cain was a grower of, of crops and vegetables and fruit. Now, God had already given a command that a sacrifice was to be brought before him. And he had demanded that that sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. And why is it? Because we even now, we understand and know what the Scripture teaches us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. God was already establishing that precedent, even this early on to demonstrate that there must be a blood sacrifice for sin. But what happened in that moment? Abel brought to God the sacrifice of a lamb. And Cain decided in his own heart that he would bring to God what he wanted to bring to God, and not a lamb, but an offering of fruits and vegetables, of the produce of the land. And we know that God rejected Cain's sacrifice. And Cain, in his anger, seeing his sacrifice rejected and Abel's accepted, grew in jealousy and hatred of his brother and killed his brother. But what was the difficulty here? Why was this such a severe consequence for Cain? Why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? Because Cain had perverted the worship of God. Now, on the outside, we look at this, well, well why is God so demanding here, right? He, he brought a sacrifice. He brought the first fruits of his harvest. Wasn't that good enough for God? No. Because God says, here how, is how I want to be worshipped. And I want to be worshipped with a sacrifice. It must be a blood sacrifice. Why? Because God, again, was setting this picture of what Christ was ultimately going to come to do. 
But Cain decided he would worship God in his own way, that he would find another way to God. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. These false teachers in Jude Day were attempting to do the very same thing. They were trying to create their own pathway, their own avenue to God, to worship God how they wanted to worship God, but not how God had demanded to be worshiped. This is why Jude says that they have gone the way of Cain. They were ungrateful as Cain was ungrateful. He was not thankful for what God had given to him. He was not thankful for what God had done for him because if he were, he would have been obedient to God's demands. These false teachers also had a hatred of others. Why did Cain hate his brother? Because his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his was not. He hated his brother so much that he murdered him. And these false teachers were much the same. They weren't committing the physical act of murder, but they might as well been. Because their hatred toward Richard was such as they were misleading them and deceiving them into believing something that was not true. How horrible it was that these false teachers were taking those inside the church some of them probably who were new Christians, susceptible to anything in that moment because they're immature in their faith. And their hatred for them was such that they were willing to purposefully mislead them into believing something that wasn't true, knowing that destruction would await them in the end. Martin Luther said that the way of Cain is to rely upon one's own works and scoff at the true good works. It is to circumvent and ruin those traveling on the right road. These false teachers had followed in the way of Cain because they had perverted the worship of God. They hated other people and they were ungrateful for what God had truly done. But Jude goes on. He says, not only have they gone in the way of Cain, he says, for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Now, if you want to find the story of Balaam, you have to go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And we don't have time this morning to, to unpack all of this. But Balaam was a prophet. He was a prophet who served the Lord, who served Israel. And Balak, the king of Moab, knew that Balaam was a prophet. And so he called to him and asked him to come and to curse the nation of Israel. Balak was afraid of Israel and the power that they had, so he called Balaam and said, would you curse the nation of Israel? And at first, Balaam refused to do it. But then he finally agreed to come. And you remember, this is the story where on the way that the donkey stopped in between two walls and it would not move, and Balaam continued to get more angry with the donkey and continued to hit it. And finally, the donkey turned around and spoke to Balaam, which I've always found interesting that he wasn't surprised by that fact. He just carried on the conversation like it was the most normal thing that had ever happened. But he says, can't you see the angel? So the angel of the Lord was preventing Balaam from going there. Now, Balaam, if you read the text, even though he rejected the offer of Balak, there was a moment in time where it almost seems as he's kind of opening the door to say, well, I'm going to say no, but I am receptive if you want to offer me a little bit more. 
because he responds to the messengers of of Balak at one time and saying, even if Balak were to give me all of the money that he had, all the gold of his household, would I not do this? It was kind of an underhanded way to say, well, you know, maybe if you sweeten the pot just a little bit more. Now, ultimately, Balaam decided he was going to do this, but the Lord quietened his mouth. But what Balaam did do, because he couldn't pronounce a curse against the nation of Israel, he told Balak, what you need to do is you need to tempt the nation of Israel with false worship and with immorality. He says, I can't pronounce a curse on them. He says, but if you put these things in front of them, put immorality in front of them, put idolatry in front of them and allow them to fall into that trap, then God himself will curse them. Why did Balaam do it? Well, the scripture tells us very clearly, he did every bit of it for the love of money. Notice what he says there. He says, for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. That word rushed headlong is also the word overflowed. It means like a a cup that is filled to the top, just overflowing with water. It can't get out of there fast enough. When Balaam saw the opportunity, he says, I can make money off of this. I can do this thing even though I know it's wrong. I can do this thing even though I see the very clear hand of God forbidding me to do it. I want what I want. And there's riches, there's money. And so he pursued it. He corrupted truth for the love of money. These false teachers in Jude's day were doing the same. They were greedy for gain. They were willing to mislead without concern of what would happen to others solely because they could richen themselves. And brothers and sisters, this same thing continues to happen today. I made reference to those on television I remember very clearly several years ago, from time to time when I was, when we still had cable television, I would flip through the channels and sometimes stop on uh, what we always referred to as the big hair network and listen to what was being said. And I remember there was a guy on there who I have no hesitancy in calling a false teacher. His name's Mike Murdoch. And he was on there that night begging people to send money in to the network. They were doing one of these big fundraiser things. And he, he looked right into the television screen and he promised, he says, if you'll send your love gift tonight, and I don't remember what the amount was, it was several hundred dollars. He says, if you'll send your love gift tonight, an invisible angel will come to your house and watch over you because of your faithfulness to support this ministry. Now, why would they do that? They do that because they're greedy. They do that because they love money more than they love truth. They do that because they have no concern that they're hurting other people. All they desire is to fill their pockets with the money of susceptible people. So it's no different. There's no different in our day as it was no different in Jude's day compared to how Balaam had acted. He was greedy for profit with no concern for others. One commentator said, to sin for the sake of gain is bad, but to rob someone else of his or her innocence and to teach them to sin is the most severe of sins. Verse 
Balaam's sin was not only his greed, but his willingness to cause others to sin, to gain what he wanted. He knew he couldn't curse the nation of Israel, so he told them, this is how you get the people to sin in order to get what you want and that I can get what I want. No concern for the spiritual condition of others, no concern for their life. He was willing to give them over to judgment because he knew that God would punish them for their sin, but he was willing to tell them exactly what they needed to do in order to get the people of Israel to sin against God. Now I want you to notice. He said, not only have they gone the way of Cain, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. He says, but they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Numbers chapter 16 is where we find the story of Korah. We know that Moses had been called by God and put into his position by God. And as God began to establish his rights of worship, God had put Aaron, Moses' brother, in as the head of the priesthood. It would continue down through generation through generation. The family of Aaron was the family of the priests. All of this had been done by God. It was not Moses' own opinion. It was not Aaron's own opinion. God had established them in their places of honor and their places of authority in the nation of Israel. But yet a man named Korah was not happy with what God had done. He was not happy with the position that Moses and Aaron were in. Now, Korah actually served inside the temple as well. He was not one of the priests, but he was a part of the temple service. And so out of his anger, out of his desire for authority, out of his desire for power, he raised up 250 of some of the most noble men in the nation of Israel and led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. A rebellion so strong that Moses and Aaron actually had to flee out in order to avoid being killed by Korah and his men. Now, if you go back to Numbers and you read through that story, you remember that Moses said to the people, we'll put this matter before God. And if God is true and if God has put us in this position, then he'll answer by opening up the earth and swallowing up Korah and his followers. And the scripture tells us that as Moses prayed this, that immediately after he finished praying, the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and 250 of his followers. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine as the nation of Israel standing here and hearing Moses speak? Then immediately as Moses finished speaking, the ground opens up and 250 people just fall into the chasm. Gone forever. It's not like they were just at the bottom of a 20-foot pit. No, the ground opened up and swallowed them. What a warning this would be to the nation of Israel. That you don't mess with what God has ordained. You don't try to circumvent what God has put in place. But brothers and sisters, what a warning, just the story of Korah, not even considering what Jude is trying to help us consider this morning, just the story of Korah should be a warning to those people today who try to circumvent God's perfect descriptions and requirements of how he wants to be worshiped. It should be a warning of those who try to distort the clear teaching of the gospel to make it into something that it's not. It should be a warning to those who say, well, I like this part of God, but not this part of God. I'll keep this, but throw away this. What a strong warning it should be. 
Korah and his followers rejected authority. They rejected the authority and the order that God had established for his church. And these false teachers in Jude's day wanted to do the same. They wanted to set themselves up as an authority. They wanted to set themselves up as the true pastors. They wanted to set them up as the true apostles, set themselves up as the true ones that people should follow after. Their rejection of authority, their rejection of the leaders of the early church was entirely the same as it was for Korah. It was not just a rejection of Moses. It was not just a rejection of Aaron, but it was a rejection of God himself. They wanted their own way of worship. They wanted to worship the way that they wanted to do it themselves. This is a common theme we see here through these examples that Jude gives us because this is exactly what he was fighting against with these Gnostics and the antinomianism that was arisen in his day. They had tried to create their own style and way of worship to come to God how they wanted to come to God instead of how he had demanded that he was to be approached. There was a similarity between Balaam and Korah in the sense that the sin of Korah did not just affect him and the 250 of his followers. Their rebellion had seeds that developed later because there were over 14,000 men who began to question Moses again because of Korah's influence. And God had to slay more than 14,000 men or 14,000 people because they were continuing to rise up against Moses and Aaron and to murmur and to bicker and to argue against his leadership. I would call you to remember that Korah was working inside the temple. He was one of the ones who was part of the religious worship of the day, which leads us to understand that Korah knew who God was. He knew the commands that God had given. He knew the order of worship. On the outside, Korah would have looked as good and as knowledgeable as anyone perhaps in the nation of Israel. But the one problem with Korah was that he professed a knowledge of God, but he did not possess a knowledge of God. He knew all the outward things. He knew all the trappings. He could tell you all the books. Of the, if, if he were alive today, he could rattle off to you all the books of the Bible in order. He had, could memorize Bible verses. He would be a star attender of Sunday school and prayer meeting and Wednesday night worship. But the problem with Korah was, was although he professed a knowledge of all these things, he did not possess it. And how do we know? Because if he had possessed a true knowledge of God, he would not have rebelled against God. If he had possessed a true knowledge of God, he would not have desired to worship God in his own way. He would have submitted himself to the authority and the teaching of God and done exactly what God had commanded him to do. We know because God punished him severely. He, God demonstrated his judgment on Korah as a demonstration of the fact that Korah, although on the outward, he looked like the perfect representation of a worker for God. He did not actually know God. 
And Jude uses this as an example because this is what was happening inside of the church to whom he writes. There were these false teachers who had risen up. And on the outside, they looked perfect. On the outside, they demonstrated all these things that seemed to say this person is a true follower of God. But they did not possess the knowledge. They only professed it. This is why we come now not just to the warning of their errors, but secondly, the evidence of their danger. Because now Jude is going to point out to us so clearly the things that were going on, the things that they should be looking for to recognize, to understand that these false teachers were a danger to the church. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. There's a lot to unpack in this section of the verse. A love feast was a meal that the early church would share together. Now, depending upon the scholar you look at, sometimes they think that it would precede the Lord's Supper. Sometimes they say that it was after the Lord's Supper. But what it was, it was a time for the church to come together, to share a meal together. Its purpose was a spirit of unity that they would come together to show love and kindness towards one another. Its purpose was to also show charity and kindness to those who were poor. Remember, the early church committed themselves to sharing all things in common. And so these love feasts were a time they would come together and they would share a meal, and it would be an opportunity for those who were less fortunate inside the church, those who were poor and didn't have as much money to come and to be able to share a hot meal together as the body of Christ. It was a wonderful time. And this, again, is a sense to help you understand how old Baptists are, because they were having potlucks even here in the New Testament. They were coming together to share a meal. And it was such a beautiful and a wonderful thing. You know, oftentimes I think in our modern times, we've kind of lost the perspective of this. But to sit down and to share a meal with someone is a very special thing. To break bread together, to commune together, to fellowship together. We see it all throughout the Scriptures. But I think in our modern perspective, we've really lost the importance of what it means to be the body of Christ, not just here in the sanctuary, but even when we go over and we share a meal together, how important that is for our spiritual life. And we understand that because Jude points this out. He says that there are those among you, these false teachers, he said, are hidden reefs in your love feast. Now, a reef is a a, a a coral system of rocks and, and large objects in the ocean that are very dangerous to ships because if a ship doesn't know that it's there, especially in the time in which Jude was living when all your ships were made of wood, because these rocks are so large and so jagged, it was very easy for a ship to drift into a hidden reef and for these rocks to split the side of the ship open. Sailors aren't worried about the reefs that they know that are there. They're worried about the reefs that they can't see. 
And this is what Jude is pointing out. He says, you know the things, the dangers that are there. He says, but what you need to be aware of is that there are those among you that are hidden reefs. They are hidden dangers inside of the church. And he really even goes past this because he doesn't talk so much here at the beginning about just the church service, but he talks about these love feasts because these were the most intimate times that the body of Christ shared together. It was these times when they were there fellowshipping together. And so Jude points this out. He says that even in the most intimate times that you share as a church, there are these hidden dangers that you need to be aware of. These false teachers, he said, sinned in several ways in these love feasts. He says, they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They had taken what was meant to be a time of unity and charity and love for one another, a time of fellowship, and they were taking these love feasts, and first what they were doing is they were breaking themselves away. They were separating into what we would call today cliques, that the cool kids were sitting over here at this table while everybody else was over here. And they weren't sharing the food. They were being gluttons. They were getting it all and heaving it to themselves and eating more and more and more to excess because they had no concern for others, no concern for the poor, no concern for the body of Christ. And Jude says you need to be aware that they're inside. They're there in these most special moments. He says they are hidden reefs. It has been said that the greatest danger that Satan can do is not from the outside of the church, but from the inside. And this is why Jude is so poignant on this matter. He says, because these are hidden reefs. He means that you look and you don't see them, but they're there. And so he gives them the things to look for to begin to understand what was going on, that they may be dealt with. The Scripture tells us over and over, Timothy, Hebrews, various other places of the Scripture, that when false teaching is found in the church, that it is not to be tolerated, that it is not to be pacified, but it is to be dealt with, dealt with quickly, and dealt with strongly. I want you to think about for a moment if you at work, I don't know if they still have these in many places, but in a lot of places they used to have a a big water thing, a water cooler at work with a big jug of water on top. You know, when you have your break and go get a cup of water. I want you to think about what if you found out that one of your fellow employees was every single day going into the bathroom, into the toilet and getting just one drop of water out of the toilet and putting it in the water cooler. Now, would you, would you wait to tell anybody that? Well, you think of it, it's just one drop, right? I mean, there's five gallons in that water jug. It's not going to have that big of an effect. No, you'd tell somebody immediately. Because even one drop is serious enough that there could be bacteria, whatever, we don't even know what could be in there. It's serious enough that you're going to tell somebody so that it can be stopped. And brothers and sisters, false teaching is far more serious than that. And when it's recognized, it must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with in such a way as that it is purged from the church. 
because it leaves such a strong danger because it is a hidden reef. The hidden reef would not just deter the ship, it would destroy the ship. But notice what Jude goes on to say there. It's such an interesting word that's used here, and it doesn't really translate well in the English. But that last phrase there, he says, they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. The original language actually means shepherding themselves. And it's such a strong, ironic contrast to what a teacher is supposed to do because the Scripture tells us that God has given to those in the church pastors who are supposed to be under-shepherds of the great shepherd. And a shepherd's responsibility is to care for the flock that he has been entrusted with. He takes them to places to eat. He takes them to the creek to drink. He protects them from the enemy. He does everything for them because sheep are not very smart animals. They will wander off and get themselves into danger as quick as you can turn your head. And it's the job of the shepherd to protect them and to keep them and to shepherd his sheep. But Jude says that these false teachers were not shepherding the sheep, they were shepherding themselves. They weren't concerned with the church. They weren't concerned with what God had entrusted them with. They were shepherding themselves. Listen to what God said in Ezekiel chapter 34, as I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. This is exactly what was happening here in the church. These false teachers said that they were faithful shepherds. They said that they were going to watch out for the flock, but instead all they did was take care of themselves. They had no concern for the church. Jude goes on. He says they are clouds without water. Now, Jesus often used agricultural illustrations when he was speaking because you're talking to an agrarian society. These people knew what it meant to work the fields, to toil day in and day out to see a crop grow. And there were seasons in the nation of Israel, seasons in this land where the rain would come and seasons where the drought would come. And if any of you in the room today are are, are farmers or you have a garden at home, you know what it means when the field is dry and you look out across the valley and you see a dark cloud on the horizon. And you think, oh, rain is coming. Now, in our days, we have water hoses and sprinklers, but in the day of Jude, they didn't have that. All they had to rely upon was the rain clouds. So for them, a rain cloud was a sign of hope. It meant that nourishment for the crops was coming. It meant that everything they were waiting on was on the way. But Jude says that these false teachers are clouds without water that you're driven by the storm. You think about a farmer who has been without water for several weeks and the crops are beginning to show the signs of its effects. The leaves are beginning to droop, turn brown at the edges, but he looks out and there he sees this cloud and his heart begins to rise because he thinks rain is coming. And he watches it come across the valley towards him and he's just waiting for the first drops to fall and the wind keeps pushing the cloud towards him. 
And he keeps waiting and waiting until he watches the cloud go over top of him and down the other side of the valley without any water, without any delivered promise. It's interesting in the Scripture that the doctrine of God is often referenced as rain. Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says, Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on fresh grass and the, and the showers on the herbs. So these teachers were supposed to be delivering the nourishment to the thirsty soul. They were supposed to be the clouds that brought the rain, which is the doctrine of God. They were supposed to be for the thirsty souls in the church. They were supposed to be the delivery point for the rain to come into their hearts and into their lives. But yet they showed up with nothing to offer. Peter had referenced this. He said of the same kinds of false teachers, they are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. These men claimed to be great teachers, but yet possessed nothing of help. They were, as Proverbs 25 puts it, like clouds and wind without rain is the man who boasts of his gifts falsely. These teachers that Jude is condemning here presented themselves as true teachers of God, presented themselves as ones who had the hope, who had the truth, who had everything that these people need. But when it came down to it, they delivered nothing. They were empty clouds without water. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. He said, it is amazing to hear many talk so confidently of so many things of which they know little or nothing about. And yet they have not the wisdom or humility to discern and be sensible of how little they know. What a clear picture of false teachers. Now I want you to hear it put a little differently. This is Matthew Henry was writing back in the 1700s or 1600s. And this is S. Lewis Johnson, who was a pastor down in Texas throughout the 70s and the 90s. He said, what is so striking to me in some of our churches in which apostasy is taught from the pulpit and the audience does not recognize its apostasy. They even sing great hymns of the, tr of the Christian faith in which the truth is expressed. But no one notices the connection because of the spiritual death that falls on a congregation that after a lengthy time does not have the gospel preached within it. They're clouds without water. They promise hope. They promise deliverance. They promise truth. But in the end, they deliver nothing. Jude goes on to say, not only are they clouds without water carried by the wind, he says they are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Again, another agricultural reference. For the farmer, when the time of harvest comes, he's waiting on the tree to produce fruit. He's been watching it all year long, and there it stands. It looks strong. It looks healthy. It begins to flower. And it begins to either perhaps produce fruit, but when the time of harvest comes, all the fruit on the tree has either fallen to the ground or rotted away. Or perhaps it didn't even produce fruit at all. But all year long, it had looked like it was going to deliver the promised fruit. It wasn't a dead tree. It was a tree that was growing. 
but it did not produce fruit. Just as a barren fruit tree, so too were these false teachers. These false teachers on the outside looked like they would deliver, looked like they would give the promised harvest, but in the end they were fruitless. They did not bear fruit in themselves and they did not bear fruit in others. In our Sunday school class this morning, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, on down the list. These are the things that a Christian is supposed to bear in his life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then you do not have the Spirit of God within you. And this is what Jude is saying. He says that these look on the outside like they should have the fruit there, but when it comes time to inspect the tree and to harvest the fruit, there is no fruit to be had. But it is also part of the job of a Christian, especially one of a teacher, not just to bear fruit in themselves, but to help other bear fruit in their own lives. That's the job of a faithful shepherd is to come alongside of people and to disciple them, to encourage them to see that they are developing fruit in their own life. And as Jude looked at these false teachers, he said they're not developing fruit in their life. They're not developing fruit in the life of another. So he said they are like the autumn tree who delivers no fruit, who said at the end of it is doubly dead. Matthew Poole said these men were wholly dead, dead over dead, dead by nature and dead by the hardness of heart, which they have contracted or that reprobate sense to which God has given them up. These men were dead in their trespasses and sins, but they were also doubly dead because they were dead in their apostasy. They had never come to the saving knowledge of God because they, so they were dead in their trespasses and sins, much like many of us were before Christ redeemed us. But now they were doubly dead because not only were they dead in their trespasses and sins, but they have hardened their heart to the point that there is no hope for them. Jude says that there's only one thing for them. He says they are doubly dead and uprooted. That uprooted means that the tree is taken out, it is cut down, and is burned by the fire. That's all that a farmer can do when a tree does not produce fruit. He doesn't leave it in the field because it's taking up viable space. He doesn't leave it in the field because it produces such pretty flowers. He has it in the field to produce fruit. And so when it does not produce fruit, he doesn't just cut it down. He uproots it, they take it out, and they burn it in the fire. The sins of these false teachers, Jude is portraying, that is incurable. Destruction awaits them. Hebrews chapter 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In the passage that Pastor Wesley read to us this morning, it would have been better for them to never have heard than to have heard and rejected the truth of the gospel. Your trees without fruit to be cast down. But notice again now in verse 13, they're also wild waves of the sea. 
casting up their own shame like foam. If you've ever been to the beach after a storm, you know that it changes things. The day before, the beach may be clean and pristine, but if a storm blows through overnight, you walk down the next morning and the beach is covered with foam and covered with debris and seaweed and sticks and whatever trash else that the sea brought in. And this is how Jude describes these false teachers. Because they, being filled with pride, seem to have a lot of power to them. And if you look on the outside, it seems like maybe they're doing something. Just as the waves, when they crash on the store, they have a lot of power, but they're not doing anything beneficial there when all they're doing is casting this foam and this seaweed up onto the beach. Calvin talked about them being as pride-filled and casting out the scum of the high-flown stuff of words of grand eloquence. He said their mouth opens up and they say things that sound important. They open up their mouth and they say things that sound eloquent. They use big words in order to make themselves look important. But in the end, the only thing that they're doing is spewing vile nonsense. They're bringing nothing good forth. They're bringing nothing spiritual forth. Jude continues. Not only are they wild waves, he says, but they are wandering stars. Now, we know the importance of the stars for sailors in the time of Jude. It was how you guided yourself from place to place. It's how you knew where you were going when you were traveling at night. You looked to the stars in the heaven, and you had fixed points on which you could navigate across the sea. What good would a wandering star be for a navigating sailor? It would be no good for them. If it's something that's not a fixed point, it's, it's nothing, it's no benefit to them. And so here, Jude is not talking about planets, he's not talking about fixed stars, but he's really alluding to the idea of a shooting star that flashes for a moment, shoots across the sky, and then disappears. A shooting star is no good for light, it can't brighten the night like the moon can. A shooting star is no good for navigation because it appears and then it's gone. These false teachers were pretending to be purposeful. They were flashing on the scene. They looked impressive for the moment, but then Jude says just as immediately as they flash onto the scene and they, they, they claim their importance, he says they will be gone. And I want you to notice as we close this morning, not just the warning of their errors, not just the evidence of their danger, but finally I want you to notice here just in the closing words of verse 13, the surety of their destruction. He says, they are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. In studying this passage this week, commentator after commentator pointed to those two words, the black darkness. It is the darkest, most dismal destruction that is possible. These are the pictures, the words in the original language points to this darkness, this outer darkness that the Scripture tells us where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
It is the punishment and the anger and the wrath of God falling upon people for all eternity. There is no way. It's why Jesus even struggled in his day to give a natural illustration that people could understand. The only thing that Jesus could point to was Gehenna, the trash dump outside of the city that burned continually because of all the trash there. And it smelled horrible and it was a horrible place to go. And he says, this is the closest thing that I can point to. But it's far worse than this. Brothers and sisters, there's no way for us to grasp and understand the total torment and punishment and everlasting destruction because we are not annihilationists. We don't believe that someone goes to hell and suffers for a little while and then after they've received their punishment, they burn up and are gone forever. No, it is a destruction, but it is an everlasting destruction. Just as we will be in heaven for eternity experiencing the presence and the promises of God, there will be those who rejected God who will be in hell forever experiencing eternal destruction, wishing that they could die, wishing that it would come to an end, but it never will. And Jude points out here, I want you to notice this. He says, this black darkness for them has been reserved forever. Now, I want you to go back up to verse 11. He says that those who perished in the rebellion of Korah. Two times here in this passage, Jude refers to the punishment of these false teachers in the past tense. He said that when the those in, who perished with Korah perished, he said, so did the destruction fall upon those who are false teachers today. He says, it is, he says their destruction is so certain, is so sure that it's as if it has already occurred. And he points that out again there in verse 14. He says, then whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. These false teachers are so hardened in their sins. So disobedient to God. So rejecting of the gospel that their destruction is certain. They will get what they deserve. Remember what he said in verse 4. He said, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. What? Those who long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. God knew. Even before the foundation of the earth, God had called and elected his children to himself. If you're here in the room and you're a child of God, you've repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in God, God chose you from the foundation of the earth. You are his elect. But God also had condemned these false teachers from before the beginning of the earth. Their condemnation was laid out beforehand. Their destruction is past tense because it is so certain that it will occur. Jude does not say they will be destroyed. He says they are already destroyed. That is how certain it is. But why? Again, why is this such a serious matter? Because it strikes at the very heart of the gospel. False teaching is so destructive because it flies at the very heart of the gospel of what God intended. Here, Jude has done a powerful job of prospecting 
a true shepherd and a false shepherd. A true shepherd is one who teaches people to worship God the way that God has demanded to be worshiped. A true teacher is the one who looks out for the concern of his flock, not for his own spiritual or his own financial gain. A true teacher is one who submits to the authority of God. A true teacher is one who seeks to the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. A true teacher is one who doesn't appear as a cloud without water, but delivers that spiritual nourishment to his people, who bears fruit in his life and seeks to help bear fruit in others. But these false teachers were the exact opposite of what God intended for his shepherds to be. Instead of leading people more and more into the holiness of God, leading more and more into the image of Christ, these people were pushing people further and further and further and further away from who God intended them to be. This is why God says that false teaching is so dangerous. And brothers and sisters, this is why we as Christians and as a church must take false teaching so seriously. It is not an insignificant thing. It is a deadly, dangerous thing to the church. May God grant us the ability to recognize, to see, and to deal with error when it arises. Father, today we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, for your instruction. Lord, what a a hard word, but a word that we need to hear. Lord, talking about judgment and destruction is never easy. But Lord, we know that it is something that we must face and tackle because Father, your word talks about it so much. Jesus spoke more of hell and the destruction that awaits those than he did of heaven. It is a warning to the false teachers. It is a warning to those who have been deceived that they should turn and to run back to you. But Father, it is also a stern warning to us as believers that we would not find ourselves susceptible to false teaching. It is a warning that we must rigid ourselves upon the word of God and not be distracted by the things of this world and the teachings of this world. Father, we know that there is no perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian because each one of us are human beings. And Father, we are not standing here today asking for you to make us into some type of, uh, of, of group that is always criticizing the things that we see. But Father, we do want to be like the Bereans. Father, we do want to be so diligent students of your word that we easily recognize false teaching. We want to know the truth of the gospel so clearly that it is strikingly evident when someone begins to teach something contrary to your word. But Father, we also want the strength to stand. As human beings, we are always susceptible to the fear of man, we are susceptible to the fear of criticism. We are susceptible to the fear of critique. 
And sometimes it causes us, Lord, to not be as bold as we need to be. But may we remember the words of Jude, Father, that you have called for us to contend earnestly, to fight for the truth, to fight for the clarity of the gospel. Lord, we would fight on behalf of our spouses. We would fight on behalf of our children. And as precious as they are to us, the gospel is far more precious. So Father, help us. In a day and time where we see the same evidences of false teaching arising in our own generation, may we be a group of people who contend earnestly for the faith. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.